Hello, a huge welcome to the Leader Connect podcast. I'm so glad that you have found us. At Leader Connect, it's our mission to make leadership easier, simpler, and more enjoyable. Pop over now to our website, leader-connect.co.uk and sign up to our free newsletter. Useful leadership wisdom and ideas direct to your inbox. It's stuff that you can put into action immediately. Now, Dean Stott lives by the ethos, the unrelenting pursuit of excellence, which he honed and crafted during his time in the UK Special Forces. His military career was ended by a parachute accident in 2011, and since then he's carved out a life less ordinary as an adventurer and record breaker. He's known for his willingness to take on any job, no matter how dangerous, and in this episode we dig into his ability to get the job done, how he makes decisions, what leadership really looks like, and the best thing is, it's all absolutely relevant, even if you're not an elite soldier or the bloke that cycles 14,000 miles along the Pan-American Highway. Get ready for special forces wisdom that you can use in your own leadership journey. I'm absolutely delighted to have Dean Stott on the podcast not only am I really excited to speak to him, but this is my first kind of transatlantic podcast. I'm stood in my shed just north of Liverpool. Dean, where are you at the moment? I'm currently in uh, Southern California. I'm not jealous. It's actually been really quite warm here today. I've had to open the windows of the shed because it was starting to feel slightly sauna-like. But what a beautiful place to live. So the first thing that I always ask people when they join me on the podcast is to give us your CV or your life story in 60 seconds. Can you do that for me? Yeah, so I was born into the military myself, pursued a career in the military. It wasn't something I always planned. Ended up spending 16 years joining the UK Special Forces, the Special Boat Service, and took a had a tragic accident, parachute accident, which shortened my career. Uh, then worked in the private security industry, got a name within industry of being the person to go to where no one else would. And then obviously got myself in some more, more dangerous situations as a civilian contractor. So took a sabbatical uh, and decided I wanted to focus my energy and attention into more sports and raising awareness for campaigns. So decided I would cycle the world's longest road, having only cycled 20 miles and yes, 14,000 miles, broke two world records and raised over 930,000 pounds in the process. You've led a kind of what I would call a life less ordinary, which I find truly fascinating because not all of us want to go out there and do dangerous or different things. You just said that you got yourself a reputation for taking on the jobs that other people wouldn't have taken on. And where do you think that kind of comes from? I think on reflection now, as I touched on the brief CV, is I was in the Special Forces and after 16 years, I got injured. So I, I didn't plan on leaving the military. So I felt that I was, my career had been stolen from me. I felt like I, I had more to give. And so when I ended up working in the private security sector, I found that I could do that in other ways and doing it through, through that. But what I was trying to do which I didn't realize at the time, I was trying to match that adrenaline rush I had when I was still in the Special Forces, where I actually come into terms with the fact that I'd left the military. So yeah, there were, we did some very successful operations, but you know, I didn't have that support network. I didn't have friends parachuting out the skies and UAVs on hand, but I was on my own. So, so I think personally, I was trying to match that adrenaline rush, but also 
part of me, I always like to give back and always like to help people. So a lot of the missions I was doing was uh, a single-handedly evacuated Canadian embassy out of Libya, 18 military and four diplomats. For me, I couldn't just leave them there. When it came across my lap and I asked if I could assist, it's human nature. Naturally, you just want to help people. So yeah, I think that was a part of it as well, the adrenaline rush and the fact that I always like to help and give back. So I, I was also in the kind of process of understanding a little bit more about you, read your book, Relentless, which uh, is definitely worth reading. And then I also listened to you on a couple of other podcasts. And my understanding is that when you were a young lad, you wanted to go into the fire service and then things kind of changed because of the way that the time was at that at the time and you ended up joining the military. Do you think that you, we always talk about within Leader Connect about having a clear and compelling purpose. And some of that is about having the clear and compelling purpose for your team when you're a leader. But I also believe really strongly in having a personal clear and compelling purpose. And I wondered if yours, even at that early age, was this sense of duty or this sense of service or this sense of doing something that was bigger than yourself to help people, to serve people. Yeah, well, obviously my father was in the military, so you know I was immersed in that environment as well. And so one of the great things about the military is that people see Hollywood doesn't help matters up the road. They may see the bombs and the guns and the things. And actually, that's 25% of what the military is. 50% of what the military is humanitarian. It's support and influence hearts and minds. And so I'd seen that through my father and through my father's friends as well. So I also I saw that giving back at an early age. For me, a fireman was what I always wanted, as you touched on. I don't know whether my wife said it's some the hero syndrome. She goes, you had it built into you at a young age that you wanted to help me uh, or be the hero. So I think there, yes, there may be an element of that. So but so I'd say I, I didn't pursue the fire service career, but joined the military, but still felt like I was giving back and helping others. So I think I did did achieve my aim as a young child. And it's bizarre, isn't it, when we kind of look back now at a certain age and kind of go, mm. actually, maybe I did when I was growing up have that, that germ of an idea of what I was going to end up doing, but it's not always that clear. So if we could kind of just kind of shift towards looking at leadership a little bit. Now you have Obviously, in your military service and then latterly outside of the military, you have led people and indeed led yourselves in some really challenging and difficult scenarios. And I wanted to ask you initially what you felt good leadership looked like and then conversely, what you felt bad leadership looks like. Yeah, so... So when I sort of have to go back to the beginning, really, when I joined the military, I was probably five foot seven. I was a young boy. I wasn't a confident individual at all. But as I went through basic training, past basic training, I've been, I'd had no aspirations of being to boys and I just wanted to get through the next course. But each course I went on, I was seeing leaders. I was seeing good leaders. I was seeing bad leaders. I was looking at my peers, but I was also seeing how it was affecting the recruits or the, those that they were talking to. And so a few, fast forward a few years, I ended up an instructor on the All Arms Commander course. And I remember my commander course. I didn't learn anything. It was basically how cold could you be? Who was the fittest? And I didn't want, and I didn't think highly of my instructors on that course at all. So when I went back, I wanted to do it slightly different. And thankfully, times had changed a little bit in the short period of four years. But we still had the instructors who fought the MO, was stand and scream and shout at the students. But for me, it was like, I wouldn't, be very much approachable. I would never ask them. I wouldn't do myself. So I would never ask them to do something if I wasn't doing it with them. And I actually got more out of the recruits that way. So 
as I was going on through my career, I was seeing, I was seeing good leaders, I was seeing bad leaders. There's those who feel that they need to have a, their opinion only. And then when I went on to the special forces, one of the things I was really surprised, it didn't matter if you were the new guy or you were the oldest guy in the squadron, everyone had a voice at that table. They went round the room and spoke to everyone, or everyone had an opportunity to speak up, whether they did or they didn't, it was up to them. And so I have seen leadership from a good perspective and a bad perspective. And I just basically handpicked the things that I like, and I think I know that work, and sort of done that myself. But I think you're, as a leader, listen to the group, and from the youngest person to the eldest has an opinion, and you don't know what their backgrounds are. You don't know what they've experienced before as well. You can't just assume... Know that they've all had the same background as you, and they will bring their own sort of knowledge with them as well. I think one of the most dangerous positions you can put yourself into as a leader is feeling that you've kind of almost got to put yourself on a pedestal, in that you're not seeking wisdom and guidance from other people, that you are believing that your decision is the only decision and the right decision. And then it's interesting when you talk about voice as well and the, the, the use of voices. I think some people believe that successful leaders have to be the loudest person in the room. And I'm fairly certain in my kind of limited understanding of what it takes to be in the special forces here in the UK, actually being the loudest person in the room is probably the most dangerous position to be in. There's a lot of research that's been done about kind of the introverted leader, the person that watches and observes what's going on and then makes the decisions. And again, I suspect that's probably a very wise position to be in when the going gets tough, taking that time to observe and then moving quickly after that, but making decent decisions. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a time when you need to be quiet. And then there is a time then when you need to lead as well. And it's really trying to find that balance. It's not leading from the start. It's like, yeah, holding back. And then when you need to come in and do so. But I think one of the problems you tend to have, there's a great book uh, called Rebel Ideas. And it talks about the diverse teams as well. And within that, they talk about how I think it's Amazon, actually, what they do on their board meetings. Because a lot of people from the same sort of background tend to listen to the leader. And if the leader speaks first, they then tend to agree with her or him because they're in charge. So what this group tends to do is when they go to board meetings, they don't tell them what the board meeting is about because they haven't had time to sort of do any research or get any sort of pre-ideas before the meeting. So they go in, papers turned over, and then they have 20 minutes to review the paper and give their feedback. And that's, that feedback is going to be natural and from them. They're not going to be listening to anyone else. But what they tend to do is they go around the room and whoever's hosting the meeting or the lead is the last person to talk, which I think is a great idea as well. I think that's one way as well that you can't steer their decisions and listen to them. And they may, <laughs> I think it's a great idea, but they may have a better idea than you as well. <laughs> so yeah, I like that concept, which comes from a book called Rebel Ideas. Oh, I love a new book. I shall have a look at that one. And, and then within the Leader Connect world, we talk about the concept of the leader being a member of the team whose function it is to lead. And I think that when you think of it like that as well, you get into that scenario where A, as a leader, you stop putting as much pressure on yourself because you're not on this. I imagine leaders in visualizing themselves on like the little characters on top of a wedding cake and being really nervous about being up there. But actually, the reality is when you think about yourself as a member of the team, but your function is to lead, then things yeah. are 
become a lot simpler and a lot less pressure. I mentioned just earlier about having to make really difficult decisions in difficult scenarios. And I wondered how you go about making decisions. Is it just a gut instinct? Or is it a particular process you go through? And then how was how have those skills from those really challenging scenarios, how does that impact your decision making on a daily basis? Yeah, so I think making decisions like now, my decisions, for you to give me a scenario now, my decision would be very different from a decision I probably made 15 years ago. So a lot of decisions come with experience. So I, you know, there's a great quote, you can't be experienced without experiences. And so you sort of learn from your mistakes and other people's mistakes. You see what's worked, what hasn't worked. So one of the things we used to do in the special forces, which can work in any role, any sort of business uh, or industry, is as soon as we came off the ground, before we go clean our weapons, we all go have a shower, have any food, we would do what's called a hot debrief, just while it's still pressing on our, on our heads. And the three questions, very simple questions were, what worked, what didn't work, and if you're going to do it again, what would we do differently? Because there was mistakes made. One of the reasons we are the best special forces in the world isn't because of the caliber of guys in the training. It's because we're learning from our mistakes and we're always evolving. And so there's three simple questions. I always, whatever I do, whether it's on operation, whether it's do, doing training, whatever, I'll ask myself those and then just take it on board. Because yes, you probably haven't done it right, but if you're going to do it again, what would you do differently? So when it comes to these, back to your original question, these situations where you need to make decisions i sort of i'm very i think it comes with again with experience or time in the military i can sort of gather information quite quickly uh, and make a decision but what i tend to do is i tend to pause as well i don't rush in because some people tend to feel they need to make decisions straight away and be the wrong decision where if you just pause and analyze just a little bit you can see things from a different angle and i think a perfect example i could give you and your audience is when I was in Afghanistan, I used to dress up as Taliban, pick up Taliban. I think it was in the book as well, the prologue and the epilogue. And the, I just couldn't get contact lenses in my eyes. So I used to always, my big blue eyes. So you can imagine, I knew I shouldn't be in this busy market square in this vehicle uh, in the middle of Kandahar. And so my senses are height. So as soon as senses are height, you already make, feeling quite irrational, making rational decisions. People started knocking on the door and I was like, you go, I've been compromised. Everything's going on in my head. The, the worst case scenario. I'm on communications back to the HQ. They're asking me, am I happy with the immediate action? The immediate action, off by heart. We train it over and over again. And that's one thing we're great in special forces. We train, train, rehearse, rehearse. And then when it comes to those situations, we second nature, we know what we're doing. You can't plan for every scenario. And that's when decision-making comes in. So I was about to basically unleash hell in this market sweat. And thankfully, the vehicle behind me came around the corner and told me to stop as I dropped my weapon on the floor. And basically, my turbine was caught in the door. So the reason I say that is I misread the whole situation. My initial reaction was to do something, which is the wrong decision. So that's why we say when we go into situations, just pause for a second and quickly read it, try and read it properly. Because if you read the initial reading of a situation may be wrong so just pause but the decision you go with is the right decision is the right decision at that time for you no one can resort to criticize for me if i had gone for the weapon and then did what i did there was no one back at hq who could criticize because they weren't in that situation i was in in that in there so 
So if you do make the wrong decision, just obviously learn by it. And the next time you don't do it, I don't like the word failure because I think there's a step stigma on the word failure. I, I call it an experience. And so if you've had a bad experience, then learn or a failure, then learn from it. If you repeat that failure, then you haven't learned from that before. That's all it's about, learning from that and moving forward. It's such a simple thing, but so often we go back and we go, why did I do that again? And I know that we say this to our seven-year-old daughter, she'll have done something daft. And then she'll come in and she'll go, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. And my husband always says to her, don't be sorry. Just don't do it again. And I think the earlier you can kind of instill that wisdom into young people means that hopefully when they get older, they will kind of embody that whole sense of it's not a failure. As you said, it's an experience. And then we learn from it. And then the other thing that I wanted to point out was that scenario that you were in without wanting to turn it into something that sounds slightly flippant, we refer to as the drama triangle. And I've seen it so often where there's this scenario that's occurring quite often what's if we were to put it into a school context for example there's an incident in a school and before you know it 25 teachers are on top of a child trying to deal with the drama that's unfolding and in actual fact if one person had taken control stepped back thought about it for a bit of time we wouldn't have had the drama triangle the drama triangle happens a lot and one of the things for leaders to do is to try and keep away from that drama triangle scenario. Yeah. There's my hot tip for you. Next time you're in a difficult situation, don't get into the drama triangle. Exactly. And actually, I'm a bit like your husband. My, my children fall over or hurt themselves. And rather than going in and giving the initial comfort, I always ask them, so what, what were the lessons learned? <laughs> my wife's like, just cuddle them false. Oh, the joy of being... In a military family, I know exactly what that feels like. My dad, he taught us to swim by throwing us into the swimming pool and just leaving us. So listen, I'd like to do the sandwich now, some quick fire Ooh. questions where I can find out a little bit more about you and maybe get some kind of hot tips from you that will really inspire people. So uh, where are they? Oh, there we go. Quote or mantra that you live by. I think I know what this one is going to be. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. I don't know. But what is the quote or mantra that you live by that really motivates you and pushes you forward? So I think the one for me is anticipation is worse than participation. It's a lot of people when... People have challenges ahead of them or have goals. They will, they will always tell you the reason why they can't do it rather than the reasons that they can. And I've been in many situations before where I've been teaching recruits or been on operations or, or with people before. And then you ask, and then afterwards, they always say, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And I, so I always say to people, when you're approaching any sort of challenge in life, participation is worth and participation. I am the queen of getting myself into an absolute flat before something happens. To a certain extent, that motivates me. But my husband always says to me, it's never going to be as bad as you've played it out in your head. And it's so true. And I love that quote. Thank you for that one. Uh, Daft question. No, actually, it's not a daft question. I think it's a really sensible question because I asked this to... John Valanthan, who is a cave diver, and I know that you're also, well, you're the frogman, so you know what it's like un- underwater. But I wanted to ask you, what are you scared of? For me, scared of failure. I mean, I mean, it's, it's you know, gonna, again, that's, that word failure is a taboo. I'm scared of failure and scared people down. I think that's why I have my challenge is I do test myself and I do raise the bar and things like that. So but that's a personal thing, yeah. My my name is fear of failure because I think if I can't do it, then you know it's time I hang up my boots. <laughs> so 
But yeah, that's my biggest fear. I've been very fortunate, yeah, as you touched on, I've died, skydived and things like that. I've done all those sort of adrenaline things and I've still survived them. So I've been to war and still survived them. So for me, it's personal failure. And you're not the first person to say that. And whenever I ask this question, it's more often than not an internal thing than it is an external thing. Yeah. Because our minds are our biggest enemies in so many ways. But managing that fear of failure is great. It's a great motivator as long as we don't spend a disproportionate amount of our time being absolutely terrified of failing because some yeah. have to fail, I think. Yeah, and I think it's when things are out of your control. So a perfect example, actually, of fear of failure. When I did the bike ride, so it's 14,000 miles, the world's longest road. So for your audience, it's equivalent to cycling from because of the curve to the earth, it's equivalent to cycling from London to Sydney and then another 4,000 miles. It's huge. I was age 40 at the time. But anyway, fast forward, when I was on the challenge, we had the documentary team with us and a film crew, and they were filming and they were asking, and they said, look, you show no fear. I talk about how fear, positivity is contagious, negativity is contagious, said fear is contagious. So if you saw fear in me, then obviously you and the other guys, you know, would be fearful as well. But I said, everyone has fear. And they said, well, what's your, and the same question, well, what's your fear? And I said, my fear is I've told the world the ethos of the UK special forces is the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. And I said, so how does it look to the world if I don't pass, uh, complete this challenge? And it was actually my own self induced pressure that I could go back to Hereford or Poole and go into a bar and not get savaged by the guys. I had no pressure from the sponsors. I had no pressures from the charities. No, they were happy with everything. So, but it wasn't that self internal fear of failing. What time is it where you are? We are, so it's now 11.30 a.m., so eight hours behind. What did you have for breakfast? Well, I had a bowl of granola and just before jumping on there, I've had uh, some scrambled eggs. Oh, nice. A nice mix of carbs and protein. Sounds absolutely <laughs> perfect. I'm just obsessed with breakfast. It's a thing, absolutely obsessed with breakfast. I know some people don't do it, but it's the one thing that I think I live by. Oh, I think you have to have it, right? I see all food as fuel. But for me, I, long before the science, all, all these protein shakes, mine was a full-on, full English breakfast before I went for a shoot run. There's nothing <laughs> better than that, is there? And what one piece of advice would you give your younger self? Uh, appreciate and sort of enjoy the moment. There's a lot of times we, Alana and I talk about it often actually, we live a fast, a fast life and we sort of look back on things we've done and achieved and actually didn't really appreciate the times and we just sort of looked at what's next. And it's something I always do. I, as soon as I finished bike ride, the world record, I was looking at the next challenge rather than actually appreciate what I'd just done. And so yeah. Probably just enjoy the moment a bit more. I just wonder if it's a military thing because I look at myself and my husband, we've been married for eight years. And in many ways, it feels like we've been married for 25. And that's not a negative <laughs> comment at all. No. Because most of that time he's not been here. But the point I'm trying to make is that that we just jam pack so many experiences into our lives. Yeah. Some of that's the this kind of right. It's almost like we relive our lives every three or two, two or three years, et cetera, et cetera. But I know exactly how that feels. And one of the things that I'm certainly working on, and I have been for the last couple of years, is to live a bit more in the moment, to be and to enjoy those things and say no to more things as well, because otherwise we do just yeah. we lose sight of the kind of stuff that I think that really matters. It's now one of the things that I picked up when I watched um 
uh, the kind of snippets video from the cycle ride, that little cycle ride that you did. Mm. Was this sense of there were moments where you got angry, which I think is completely understandable. And then noticed that you put in the book that drive comes from negative energy. And I think maybe negative energy is a better word than perhaps anger. I wondered how you, because negative energy can sometimes boil over and become pretty unproductive and not very positive. Mm -hmm. Wondered how you use negative energy or indeed anger to kind of push you through some of the scenarios that you've been in. Yeah, so I think with that three-minute snippet, one of the things I, I touched on earlier, the documentary guys asked, guys show, shows no emotion. I think they managed to capture all the emotion of three and a half months in, in that video. And that was a mixture of the heat. It was 147 in the desert. So there's an element of that. And also, yeah, so the situations, there's so many contributing factors. But yeah, you talk about the negativity as well. You know, I was dealing with issues as well, away from the bike ride as well. So for me, I'm like, because I can just focus that into what I was doing it was fitness. But, but yeah, I think the resilience get a lot of people in nowadays. I think I put, the, I put a lot of people in three categories. So when I did the bike ride, there's those that would never be able to achieve that. And they just give you their full support at that. Hats off to you for doing that. There are those that are similar to you who could achieve it, uh, who, would, who would achieve it. And then there's those who are in the position that they potentially could but just don't find time to do it. And they're the ones who try and hold you back because you're make, you're now stepping away from them. And so, yeah, I get a lot of that from people. Uh, I did get a lot of that from a certain amount of people. I mean, as you, you would have known from Relentless, joining the military, <laughs> told me I'd last two minutes. I'm like, great. So that, that wasn't the response I expected. But that gives me the fire in the belly. That's my drive. When people say, what, what keeps you going? What keeps you pushing? It's because it's those white noise, those in, in, in the background, because there's no point. And we're in a world of social media where people will go back and forth and start arguing over things. And it's like, you're not going to convince someone who has a different opinion from you. So the best thing to do is course of action is just go do it. And so that's what I do. I just take all that negative. I mean, I'm very thankful that I don't have much negative feedback at all but those that i do i just say right there's no point in getting into a tit for tat but just watch this space and then three and a half months later yeah became the first man in history to do it under 100 days so it's just like you know, might drop and then walk off <laughs> this is like next challenge so so yeah it's turning that negative into a positive there is there's always going to be the yin and yang the positive the negatives now and that's what we've sort of realized a lot alan and i in the last few years is just cut out the negativity. Just cut out. There's people who are naturally negative, and the positivity is contagious. So there's negativity. So we really have sort of limited who we sort of spend more time with than we used to before. I think the other key to battling against negativity is knowing exactly that the journey you're on is the right journey. Yeah. It's like the cheesy, having that why, having that clear and compelling purpose that we talk about. And if you know that that's absolutely right doesn't matter what anybody else says. Yeah. And I often know that those times where I start to realize that the criticism or whatever might be affecting me is that I go back and go, right, um, you know, am I heading in the right direction? Am I following the clear and compelling purpose? If I'm not, then maybe mm. I need to adjust that because I start to feel more confident about the direction that I'm going in. Yeah. And we're all unique as well. So what the way you do things in the proceedings will be different from me or someone else. So a bit going back to the a lot of people were saying to me, "Oh, this is how such a no, professional scientist. This is how they train." And I said, "Well, I'm not 
then and I'm being stopped. And it's like when my coach would have me as thin as my pen on day one and wanted me, I said, no, I'll keep the weight on because I knew from my time in the military that, you know, if you're 100% fit on day one, you're going to burn out by week two or three. This is a three and a half month challenge. So I saw, sort of took my experiences into this challenge as well. But also the previous record holders, they all went from the Alaska to Argentina. And I spoke to them all. And I asked them those three questions. What, worked, what didn't work? If you're going to do it again, what would you do differently? And all their issues were in South and Central America. So for me, from a sort of military planning perspective, why not get those issues out of the way early? Get that done early and then you go into North America in the second half. So one of the proudest things I did is I turned it on its head. I started from the bottom and went the other way. Just because they went that way didn't mean it was the right decision or the right decision. So we're all unique. I mean, we all have our own experiences to bring to the table. So yeah, you have, you'll have those that say, well, I, I didn't succeed. That we probably didn't do it. I'm going to do it a different way. So, yeah, we're unique. Can I just go back very quickly and talk about words? Because you mentioned uh, your father, who I know is no longer with us, but that that kind of you won't last more than two minutes in the army had a very similar scenario when I left school. I knew exactly what I wanted to do and they told me I would never do it. And I now realize to a certain extent, maybe that was some kind of very naff motivational uh, speech. I don't know. But you talk about the power of words and how important words are. And I couldn't agree more with that. Can you explain a little bit more about why words and your choice of words is so important? Yeah, well, the fact that I still talk about it, what are we now, 25, 27 years later, <laughs> what my father said, I agree with you. I think probably it may have been reverse psychology. I don't know. It may be he knew that I needed that little kick. Or extra motivation, I don't know. But the words, as you touched on, are very powerful. And, and I get asked the same question. You know, Tommy, my boy, wanted to join the military. What would you say to him? Well, I definitely would say you would last two minutes. This <laughs> is so, but yeah, it is. It's only something, and us as a community, we're changing, we're learning more about mental health and things like that. But yeah, I would be very more selective in the words that I use. So finally, the thing that I wanted to ask you was centered around kind of imposter syndrome. Now, when I coach leaders and when I speak to people on a daily basis, and some of this comes from the world in which we live in, when we're constantly bombarded with people looking a certain way or doing a certain thing or dressing a certain way or being in a certain place, and we know it's all, it's a hyper reality, but a lot of people suffer from imposter syndrome, particularly leaders. They're waiting for that. A lot of them won't even call themselves leaders because I don't know, they're waiting for the job title that says it or that moment that will never come. Imposter syndrome comes entirely from our own self-belief. I wondered if you'd ever had the experience of suffering from imposter syndrome and do you ever doubt yourself and perhaps how you deal with that? I'm confident in my abilities. I never doubt my abilities. Imposter syndrome, I suffered out on social media really bad going through training at the moment. And one of the biggest things to me is always imposter syndrome. It's like, well, why do I have a voice at the table? Why do people need to know about this and that? And they said, well, you'd be surprised people really are. And so for me, social media was taboo when I was in the special boards. We weren't on social media and now have to use it to your advantage to do promote future challenges or whatever you're doing. So so it's not that I'm, it's not that I'm not confident in my abilities. I'm confident in my abilities. I always am wondering what my friends are thinking. When I did my book, I didn't write my book. You know, I read it knowing that my friend, when I had uh, my ghostwriter, Jess, he was great because 
I wanted to go into more detail because I was thinking what my friends would be thinking from the special forces. And he's like, half these readers don't care about that. They just want to flow. So yeah, I'm always conscious of what I do and how that's perceived by the special forces community. And I think that's something, and that's really sort of helped me back with the imposter this sort of imposter syndrome. I am getting a lot better at it with social media training and things like that. But um, in regards to my abilities, now I'm confident then, but I'm, I don't really, it's actually a great tool, social media, as we do now, podcasts are a great tool. People will always learn from them. So it's really just switching my mindset that this isn't a taboo as it was in the days. This is something you do get your message out and help other people. And I, I genuinely think from somebody who's worked in the media industry for a disproportionately large amount of time and worried exactly the same way if I bring up the fader in the morning on the radio show and I say something, what's everybody else going to think? Or particularly, or worst case scenario, my parents who always listen. I gave away some stuff that I never wanted my parents to ever hear from me, but I did. And the, I think the one thing that just kind of kept me going was that sense of authenticity is being yourself and putting yeah. your story across and knowing that what you have to pass on is really important. And we've just uncovered that in the space of 45 minutes. And I think for anybody that's leading as well, I know leaders who really struggle to stand up in front of people and tell them their story or put across what it is that they're really passionate about. And the reality is we all have something important to say. We just need to get up out of our seats and say it because otherwise the world stops as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and it humanizes the leaders as well. It actually, you then become relatable to your audience or your employees as well. I wanted to say thank you so much. Relentless, people can go out and buy and you can get it on Amazon or wherever it is that you buy your books. SAS Australia, I believe, has now finished, but I did manage to find here in the UK some bits and pieces on YouTube. So if you want to go and watch Deed in Action on that, then you can do. I know you've got in the pipeline some exciting TV stuff. And then you've also got another challenge potentially coming up and we will keep in touch and let people know what all of that is. And of course, what we will do so that we can see all of the great stuff that you are doing on social media is we'll make sure that we put all of your social media pages in the show notes for the show. But thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, sir. So that's it for this episode. Do go back and download all of our previous episodes for leadership wisdom that you can make use of right now. I'd also love it if you hit the subscribe button. That way you won't miss a single new show. And if you'd like to know more about how we can support you as a leader, click on the link below to visit our leadership platform. We will help you become a more confident leader with the right work-life balance.